You're listening to Marks of a Healthy Church, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Welcome to Lesson 3 in Biblical Theology. Uh, Last week, we kind of ran through at lightning speed through the Old Testament, and we got what we could in one hour. And uh, there was a lot, I'm sure, that was missed, and we could go on and on. Um, But for the sake of this series and keep things moving along, we must. So, um, on your handout, I got at the top a little bit of a summary of what we went over last week. Uh, Point one, the Old Testament chronicles the faithfulness of God to His people, develops the story of the promises or covenants of God of a coming king like David who will establish a forever kingdom. Okay, so that was our first point. We wanted to recognize that Jesus is king and that he was spoken about and prophesied in the Old Testament and that that was what they were expecting and waiting for. And then we also recognize that the Old Testament left us in basically the rebuilding stages of exile. Many of the Jews still in exile, not uh, wishing to come back to Israel, and that they were a different people after the exile. And um, Jeremiah, in, in chapter 31, gives us a promise of a new covenant where, we, where, where people will know the Lord as He truly is. And again, the lesson today is going to explain what that looks like. <clears throat> and also we saw in Joel where his people will have his spirit. And so, um, the beginning of the New Testament, um, if we look at even just Matthew, the first book in our New Testament, we see a genealogy. A genealogy that gives us Christ's lineage and brings us from Adam, 14 generations, to Abraham, and 14 generations to David, and then from David, 14 generations to Jesus. And that basically, in a very interesting way, a very um, comprehensive way, showing us that all the promises were fulfilled um, in the seed, and um, and that when we talk about the incarnation, God coming and becoming man, that God actually did become man in a family and had parents like us, but obviously uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, um, I got down here, the incarnation is the first point, and that really is um, a Christian distinctive. And so what I mean by that is Christianity, what would Christianity be without the incarnation? I mean, really, it doesn't even make sense. It would be a philosophy, maybe, or a nice, a nice story which we're looking at this as a story, as written down, but we see it as an inspired story. And Christ becoming incarnate is really um, the crux of the matter. And so, 1 John 4, 2, we read that, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is God. That Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So we know that somebody is speaking truth 
they're, they're telling us or showing us God's Spirit if they're confessing the Incarnation. And so that is very important. That connects us back to Joel 2 and Jeremiah 31. And so um, I got a lot of verses written down there. Um, if anybody has their Bible with them, I see some people do, some people don't. Um, just kind of randomly pick whatever one you like. All right, so the first point under the Incarnation is Jesus is described as the light of the world. In John 1.9. Did anybody pick that one? Okay, Joanne. John 1.9. Okay. It's all right. That was the true light. All right. So Jesus there is the true light, and he lights every man that comes into the world. His birth being signaled even by what? The star in the sky. That's right, a light. And it was being signaled to the world, which was represented by the wise men coming from the east, the ruler, or possibly rulers, kings from the east. And he came to give clarity about God. And we'll talk about this more in the section on the image of God. But he gives clarity about God, clarity about God as the true image. And his coming gives clarity also to the Hebrew Scriptures. Right before Jesus and before his whole life and his death and crucifixion and resurrection, the Hebrew Scriptures couldn't possibly point you to the truth. And his coming reveals our depravity, uncleanness, and our need. So his coming and the record of it, we see what we should have been like. We see how we should act, um, the way our lives should have been conducted. We see our, our spiritual poverty, our uncleanness, and our need for redemption. And so all these things give light to the world. John 1.14, the Word made flesh. Carolyn? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. The Word made flesh. A communication of divine condescension, right? It says that they beheld His glory. All throughout the Old Testament, anybody was fearful to be in the presence of God, to see God. And Moses saw him briefly passing from behind, and uh, when he came down from the mountain, they couldn't even be in his, in his presence. So we beheld his glory. Um, and that's just, that's just a beautiful thing to say of Jesus. And so we saw... We see in his life that he is so utterly, so holy. Um, and we see the necessity of the incarnation, that a true mediator, being both man and God, that he had to come because there would be nobody that could reconcile man and God together without them having this, this, this strange connection to both of us, being truly God and truly man. How could one side or one person that didn't have both of those natures, how could they represent the other side properly? And so this text also says that he was full of grace, that he was full of the giving of God's love by giving of himself without reserve. He didn't hold anything back, and we'll see that more and more as we go. 
and full of truth. Again, pointing back to the light of the world, he reveals the true state of things, the true truth about God and the truth about man, and the image of God. So we have John 1.18 or 1 John 4.2. Kim? Yeah. So again, going back to we don't know God without Christ. Jesus fulfilled the office that Adam and Israel failed in. Um, Adam representing all men, and then Israel, the covenant people. Um, Jesus fulfilled those offices and thereby showing us that he is the image of God. Um, we see him physically depicting and performing the whole law of God. So in the Old Testament, we're given the law of God, we're given what is expected of us, um, and we see Jesus actually fleshing that out. And then, by uniting us, the church, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the two becoming one, he gives us this image and works it in us through his Spirit. And that is kind of the culmination and where we're going, um, that he actually makes us into the image of God, which is, again, a beautiful thought. The greater Moses. There's a lot in this section. Um, did anybody grab one of those verses? Justin? Okay. So the law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through the All right. And then I have written down Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken or listen. And then later on in verse 18, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Okay? And so we see that there was an expectation of another Moses, that he would come from the people, all threads and things that we've talked about already. And then it's really interesting to kind of look at um, the similarities between Moses' life and Jesus. Starting right in infancy, what do um, both Jesus and Moses do? Um, or, or Yeah, what, what happens to both of them in their infancy? There's a threat on their lives, right? And they both escape it um, by different means, but their, their very life is threatened in infancy. We see that both of them have passed through the waters. Moses bringing the people through the Red Sea and Jesus being baptized. Um, we see their trial. Moses spending 40 years in the wilderness and Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness. And who remembers the first plague of Egypt? A little Bible trivia. The, the water into blood. That's right. Turn the Nile into blood. And Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine. You see some interesting imagery there. Um, coming out of Egypt as well. Oh. Yeah, getting there. Oh, I'm sorry. You're jumping ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so excited. I know. <laughs> Jesus says the greater Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. So, who wants to explain that connection? Do you get... Um, where did Moses give a sermon or teach the people? He's on... Mount Sinai, right? Where he delivered to the people the word of God. 
And then Jesus takes the people onto the mount. And for some reason, we, I often, or for a lot of my life, didn't make that connection. But it's, it's there. And Moses brought the people into the desert to worship. And God dwelt with them in the tabernacle. And Christ brings us out of our own Egypt, our bondage to sin, on our way to the promised land, and provides the Spirit to dwell in us. Moses gave them manna in the desert. Jesus is the manna. But also we see him feeding the multitudes and he institutes the new covenant with bread and with wine. So that's just, I mean, that's unbelievable imagery. And it's good to think about these things and see how Jesus really is. Like we say, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, but how does he do that? Um, And then obviously Moses delivering his people from sin or from slavery and Jesus being the greater Moses by delivering us from our sin. All right, the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. Oh, go ahead. The next day John saw Jesus It's amazing that this is almost how Jesus is introduced um, in the Gospel of John. And we see Jesus represented as the Passover lamb, dying in the place of the firstborn son. He was without blemish, and his bones were not broken. And there, like, really is much more that could be said about that. That's all I wrote down, but um, we see Jesus as the only mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5. Eric? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. And so it's clear, it's um, evident from everything that we read earlier, the incarnation and Jesus being the only possible mediator and our need for mediator, all of those things being fulfilled in Jesus. And really there are many more um, proofs qualifying him for such a role. And so we need to have that in our minds when we when we read scripture, when we when we see Jesus and the things that he does, know that it is always um, as a mediator that he's acting. Right? Because we can't see God except through Jesus. <clears throat> and so now we'll begin uh, talking about Jesus's ministry. Um, the first point I have there um, is he establishes his authority. So I don't know if anybody grabbed Matthew 8. Okay, Pastor, did you want to read all three of them? Uh, the birth is short. Sure. Matthew 8, 23. Yeah. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, and he was asleep. And his disciples came to him, and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said to them, Why are you fearful? Only you will faith. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? All right. And there's like a couple other examples there. We won't go through all of them. Um, but this, the next one was uh, when they get out of the boat and they encounter the demon possessed man. And then um, chapter 9, 1 to 8 is. Um, I forget what. I didn't write it down. Um, 
And so anyway, these three stories are couched close together, um, and they give us an example and depict Jesus as exercising authority over all things. Um, he exercises authority in the first story over waves and the power of nature, and then in the second story over devils and powers of evil, and then in the third story over the consequences of sin, the curse. And so there's really no area where Jesus doesn't exercise and prove that he has power over these things. And if we think back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.21, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And so we see that Jesus even has the authority to comment on the very words of God. Um, so everywhere Jesus turns, he exercises authority and fulfills the expectation that we had from Adam and acts as a Davidic king. Okay, Adam was called to go out and establish dominion over the earth. And David acted as a king over Israel. And Jesus, we see in his ministry, fulfilling those roles perfectly. Um, he purified the unclean. So that's Matthew 8, 1 to 4. I, got, I just took like um, little bits that were important. Um, Behold a leper, and then later his leprosy cleansed. An unclean man is made clean here, showing that Jesus has the power to heal. And then Luke 8, 43 to 48. That's the story of the woman that had the issue of blood for 12 years. When she comes into contact with Christ, by faith she is made whole and given peace. And so we see that there was power in Christ and he had power to clean what was unclean. Um, and this was a sign of the coming Messiah. It was prophesied in Isaiah thirty-three twenty-four. It says, And the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick, and the people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. So many people in Jesus' day were healed. Jesus explains the law. Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught the people the spirit of the law. I feel like when we read the Pharisees and how they looked at the law, it's almost how sometimes our kids look at the rules of the house. Um, I see them often using the rules to hurt their siblings. You know, watching for ways to catch them or um, conveniently remembering certain rules when they find that their sibling is outside of the rules. And it's like the law had become a weapon to use against your neighbor. But Jesus clarifies in this sermon that the purpose of the law was to love your neighbor. And so, again, just showing, showing us God through his teaching and actions. Yeah? I just to condemn Yes, absolutely. Ultimately, it condemns you. And yeah, just the fact that you're using the law in those ways. I mean, it just further shows the depth of our depravity, that we would use such a grace of God. Here, live like this and it'll go well for you. And then we just want to hurt people with it. Um, fulfilling the law, Matthew 3.15, where Jesus is baptized. Andrews? Jesus answering said unto him, 
Suffer it to be not, to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. All right. Then he suffered him. Yeah. And so Jesus identifies with us in all points, except for being him being without sin. And absolutely no part of his life did he not obey his Father. And this baptism was representative of his anointing as prophet, priest, and king. And thus the Spirit came and rested on him like it would have come to the Old Testament kings and prophets. This was the beginning of his official ministry, right? A ministry in office. He was obedient in all time before that. And then he would be obedient to death moving forward. But this was the beginning of his official ministry. And Jesus brings and preaches a different kind of kingdom. Um, John eighteen thirty six, Eric. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Yeah. So clearly showing that this is not the kind of kingdom that you guys are thinking or expecting. And then the other, uh, the other verse, Matthew twenty twenty seven, is where the disciples were wanting a high position in Jesus' kingdom. Did somebody grab that one? I have a portion of it. Katie? And whosoever will be chief among you, Jesus really is turning the world upside down here. It's realities and ideals. Um, it's, not, it's not by the power of the flesh. It's really by giving up the power of the flesh or using the power of our flesh for others. Um, Jesus' kingdom will not be established by self-interest or self-interested power, but rather by self-giving power, like what he has been showing all through the scripture. And then we also see Jesus being represented as a new Adam in Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13. We don't have to read all those verses. But in, there, in those verses is the temptation of Jesus where he is tempted in a way very much like Adam. So the devil comes to him and tries to get him to do something. And the difference, what's, what is the difference between Adam and or some of the differences between Adam and Jesus. Did, did Adam maybe have an advantage over Jesus? When he was tempted, he was in the garden, and he had a full belly, uh, we, we could assume, right, with, with every good food for eating, being there, and really everything was at his disposal. He was completely prepared uh, for and cared for, and Jesus finds his temptation in the desert, fasting, being alone, and having really uh, not a good time about it. <laughs> um, so Jesus overcomes the devil with the word of God, unlike Adam, who believed the lie. And Jesus represents a new humanity, humanity that would believe in the word of God. And finally, in his ministry, I included his rejection. Um, John 1, 10 to 11. Pastor? 
He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So his kingdom and his ministry would ultimately, or at some point, be rejected. Even his disciples left, his closest friends. But this was necessary. Um, because he hadn't been completely obedient, or, or he hadn't come to the completion of his obedience, at, to, and to be our substitute, he would have to suffer on our behalf. And so it, 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 he needed to be rejected, and, and it's sad and terrible, um, but we see that, that Christ brought glory out of that and in a way um, identifies with us in, in all of our, our own rejection and suffering. And so the next point, um, our next heading, suffering, we, we can talk about Jesus' active and passive obedience, or another way of putting that, his accomplished precepts and his suffering. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Did anyone grab those? Carolyn? For being in the form of God, God had not brought you to the people of God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Amen. Probably one of my favorite portions of scripture, and really that those verses, I mean, that's, that's like everything that I've been talking about. Um, obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. So specifically in reference to his suffering, not only did Christ live a life of obedience and fulfilled the law, um, accomplishing the law, but he suffered also the just, just punishment for sin. And therefore, establishing himself as the obedient and faithful son on all accounts. Taking up his cross, Luke 9, 51. Rachel. Now it came to pass in the time to come for him to be received up, and he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so that line right at the end, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, which really is the kingdom from which he will rule. Um, the kingdom where typified or where in the Old Testament, Melchizedek was the first king and priest that we're told about of ancient Jerusalem, and then David. And then notice Jesus going to establish and begin his kingdom by taking up his cross. Steadfast, resolutely, and obedient unto death. It really is marvelous when we think about all of that. The wrath of man, Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-seven to thirty-one. Pastor, and the soldiers of the governor took Jesus unto the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. They stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe, and they twisted a crown of thorns they put upon his head, and reed in his right hand, and bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, "Hail, King of the Jews!" They spit upon him and took the reed smote him on the head, and after that they had mocked him, they took the rope off of him, put on his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. Alright, so the Roman soldiers, representing the ruling power of the day, the established kingdom 
in Israel at that time, bringing um, humility upon Christ. And then the grace of Jesus being displayed as later on he would forgive them. Um, So this is an important part of our story that the wrath of man was poured out on Jesus and he took it and forgave them. Um, Jesus became a curse. Galatians 3.13. Charlie? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law that has become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Right. And so illustrating for us the transfer of our guilt to him and through, although innocent, he endured the fate of the guilty. Um, the wrath the wrath of the Father from Isaiah 53.10 Eric He hath pleased the Lord to bruise him He hath put him to grief When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin He shall see his seed He shall prolong his days And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand Yeah, so we recognize that it was not just the wrath of man that was poured out on Christ because it was not just humanity that's been transgressed, right? Ultimately, we've transgressed the law of God. And so Christ bears our guilt towards God on the cross as well. And it being satisfied, restored communion with God. So the wrath of the Father is a very important um, thing to recognize with uh, the sufferings of Jesus. Um, Mark 10.45, a ransom for many. I have it here. Came, he came to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Christ spilled his blood, or his spilled blood has purchased a people redeemed from their sin. And so that is a summary of the sufferings of Christ. Again, really, you just, just have to read the New Testament and you can see all of these things. And, um, you know, recognizing that if he's truly God in the flesh... Um, that that none of this was, and, and and he made none of this above him, right? He didn't come with an authority that demanded his own, um, but he went and and suffered, and became humbled um, for us to accomplish our redemption. So we'll move on to the sending which would be um, more or less recorded in, at the very end of the Gospels and into Acts and the Epistles, um, we see finally a new kingdom that truly knows God has come. So Jeremiah 31. And if somebody has Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Through the image of the invisible God, the first one of every creature... By him are all things created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Alright. So we see that he is the very image of God, and he has been revealed to the world. Or he he reveals that image to the world. And Jesus' kingdom is the Davidic kingdom that is established on the foundations and teachings of the apostles. 
right? We only know about the things Jesus did because the apostles tell us about it. Um, we recognize that the apostles' teaching is the collection of books in our New Testament. So Jesus gave authority to the apostles in Matthew sixteen nineteen and Matthew eighteen eighteen. Um, we don't we don't have to read those. The point being, Jesus didn't write anything down. Um, the apostles are the ones that recorded and spread the teachings and actions actions of Christ, and these truths are kept and perpetuated by the church. And we see also that his sheep hear his voice. So we recognize that the church speaks his words, believes his words, and obeys them. Um, we see also in Acts the giving of power. Acts 2, verses 1 to 41. Again, we won't read all of that. All of that. Um, but we recognize that or we're all familiar with the story of Pentecost, where Christ's Spirit came down and rested upon the apostles. Um, it's interesting. Does, it, does everybody know that there was a Pentecost in the Old Testament as well? Yeah, I, I feel like for some reason that evaded me for many years. Um, but uh, we see a new Pentecost, and um, what it is, it's a... It's an initiation of a new teaching. The Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament um, was a celebration of the, the original delivering of the law at Mount Sinai. And so what we see in our new Pentecost is a celebration of the new teaching of Christ um, and that the law, instead of being written down on tablets, being written down in our hearts. And so the Spirit of Christ bears witness to Jesus in all who believe. And that's, that's the power that the church has. It's the Word of God. Abraham's seed, finally, blessing the whole world. So we see the promise that was given to Abraham being fulfilled in Jesus and ultimately through the church, through the children of Abraham by faith. Um, so God is proved by all of Jesus, what he did, and the church even, being the, the blessing going out from Jesus to the world, um, all coming from faith like Abraham. And so that is um, kind of our lesson on the New Testament, just kind of looking at all the big major themes and ideas and events. And then next week, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the reign of Christ and so how the church moves forward and uh, the anticipation of the return of Christ and a little bit how that fleshes out in the life of the church.